President Lincoln's Cottage, we engage with visitors in conversation on difficult topics, from slavery to grief to immigration. Visitors, young and old alike, come here from next door and from around the globe. And occasionally, we get asked a question on a tour that stops us in our tracks, one we wish we could spend a half hour answering. Some of these questions on their face were innocent or simple, but on a second look, they contain a level of complexity that leaves us wanting to know more. Each episode, we'll investigate a single, real question a visitor has asked us here. At President Lincoln's Cottage, we're storytellers, historians, and truth seekers. So we called on people whose expertise could speak to all the facets of these questions. I'm Callie Hawkins. And I'm Joan Cummins. This is Q&Abe. Come on down the rabbit hole with us. Let's take that half hour now. For this episode, we're exploring the question, how could Lincoln sleep if slavery was happening? I got asked this question by a second grade student who was on a tour of the cottage with her class. We were in the drawing room having just discussed what slavery was and she was sort of stumbling over her words, but she finally got this question out. And I answered her in the moment that mostly he couldn't and that he would pace back and forth in the middle of the night while he was thinking. You know, one of the things that really intrigued me about this question to begin with is the importance our society has put on sleep. I mean, my mom always made it seem like I would surely fail whatever big exam I had the next day if I didn't get a good night's sleep. So with all of these late and all-nighters, how did Lincoln function? That led us to the idea that perhaps he was practicing biphasic sleep, something that was popular in the centuries just before Lincoln. So we started there. Biphasic sleep gained prominence as a historical phenomenon due to the work of Roger Eckerk, whose work on early modern people's sleep and nighttime activity is in his book At Day's Close, Night in Times Past. His research indicates that before the advent of the Industrial Revolution, people in the 1500s through the 1700s or so went to bed at dark, slept for several hours, and then woke in the middle of the night to think, pray, talk, have sex, etc., and then slept for several more hours until dawn. This idea gained credence through Thomas Weir's study at the National Institutes of Health, which showed a similar sleep pattern developing among people whose exposure to light was limited to 10 hours per day instead of a more typical 16. It's now been turned into a health craze where people try and game their sleep schedules into a biphasic or even polyphasic pattern to reach maximum productivity, uh, which seems kind of dangerous and impractical to me. Yeah, ultimately it seemed unlikely that Lincoln's sleep was biphasic in this way, He was living far uh, enough after the period Eckert studied, and though he spent his life without electric light, there's really no evidence to indicate that he went to bed at dusk or experienced this middle-of-the-night meditative period. So that part's off the table. We'd kind of got the time period wrong in this initial foray, so we went to speak to Jonathan White, a historian and author of Midnight in America, Darkness, Sleep, and Dreams During the Civil War, for some context on how Americans were sleeping during Lincoln's time. How were people sleeping during the Civil War anyway? Yeah, I think the Civil War was probably the most sleepless period in American history. You have soldiers who are off fighting and they have all sorts of things that are keeping them awake whether it's the noises of camp or being woken up in the middle of the night because there's a false alarm or real maybe a real alarm of an attack coming from enemy soldiers there are all sorts of things that keep people awake and then on the home front you have families that are very concerned about their loved ones who are off away fighting and so they too are often facing sleeplessness because of the anxiety of being involved in this 
gigantic civil war. Not to mention people's sleep or lack thereof was having a direct impact on the war. John also talked to us about the poor command decisions during the war that can be attributed to lack of sleep, including a famous blunder by Ambrose Burnside. One of the things that I've that I did some looking into with this book was the importance of sleep physiologically to human beings. And this is something that 19th century Americans didn't understand because they didn't have the science behind it. And so there are a number of battlefield blunders that have been looked at for the last 150 years as blunders. And oftentimes it's seen as poor command decisions, which they were. But I think that one of the things that scholars need to do more paying attention to is the lack of sleep that officers were having during the war. And so Burnside is famous for having ordered a just suicidal assault at Fredericksburg, Virginia in December of 1862. And wave after wave of Union soldiers went against an entrenched line where the Confederates were up a hill behind a stone wall and they're just mowed down. And it's just a terrible defeat for the Union. And one of the things that I think played into that was that Burnside was sleep deprived going into the battle. And so that probably had an effect on his judgment. And that's something that I think scholars should look more into. We had thought from the beginning, okay, being sleep deprived isn't good and affects your ability to function. And it was fascinating to have a concrete example from the Civil War. Going forward though, we had science questions. We had to find out more about exactly how sleep deprivation affects a person medically. We reached out to Dr. Richard Waldhorn, who works on sleep medicine at Georgetown University. If someone is experiencing disordered sleep for whatever reason, however they got there, what effect does that have on their ability to make decisions and their judgment and sort of functioning yeah, it can like be, that? Yeah, it can be profound. You know, people with chronic sleep deprivation, chronic insomnia, or a chronic sleep disorder like sleep apnea or something that disturbs their sleep have difficulty with alertness in the daytime, difficulty with concentration, difficulty with things known as divided attention tasks. So think about driving a car, right? That's the classic example of divided attention. You gotta keep your eye on the road, but you also have to look at the directional thing and you have to see your speedometer. And those become much more difficult in patients with, with sleep deprivation. And so we actually see a higher rate of automobile accidents in patients with sleep apnea, almost as much as uh, related to alcohol. So uh, it, it, can be, it can be quite disturbing to functioning. So serious interference with those types of, of tasks. Uh, but more subtle ones, people have problems with, as you mentioned, decision-making, uh, complex analysis the patients who come complain they say you know i just i used to be able to read a paragraph or read something in my work and retain it and but now i can't i'm just my, my, my there's a noticeable cognitive decline associated mm. with with sleep deprivation and, and sleep disorders interestingly enough john white mentioned that soldiers who were court-martialed for falling asleep on picket duty during the civil war we're often accused of being drunk, and he says it's possible that some of that was attributable to sleep deprivation instead. So what do we know directly about how Lincoln was sleeping? I went and combed through some primary sources to try and find out. As you might imagine, they consist of lots of little tiny mentions throughout a variety of things. John White said this was part of his research process, too, that he was combining tiny fragments, which 
digitization and resources like Google Books make a lot more possible for historians now than even 10 years ago. But at any rate, here's what we know about how Lincoln was sleeping. His aide, John Hay, says that he lay awake on the sofa in the executive office, that Lincoln rose early, and that his sleep was light and capricious, and sometimes Lincoln would walk the halls in the middle of the night. Hay also says that Lincoln did not sleep very well, but that he spent a good while in bed, and that he went to bed around 10 or 11 o'clock, except for some nights when he was up at the War Department until 1 a.m. waiting for news, and that generally, Lincoln was up and dressed by 8 in the morning or so during summers at the cottage. Even Joshua Speed, Lincoln's best friend as a young man, said that Lincoln was irregular in his habits of eating and sleeping, and that when Speed asked Lincoln when he slept, Lincoln said, just when everybody else is tired out. So it kind of seems to me like Lincoln had pretty restless sleep patterns. Does it seem to you like Lincoln was getting enough sleep? Oh, no, not at all. Um, and in fact, some of my favorite stories that we tell about Lincoln of his time here at the cottage are of him appearing in his pajamas. You know, we have the story of George Borat, who uh, came out here late in the evening when Mrs. Lincoln was already in the bed and the, the valet told him that the president was getting ready for bed. Lincoln then greeted Mr. Borat and company um, in his pajamas. We also see images. Uh, there's a painting I'm thinking about in particular of Lincoln in his pajamas in his bedroom, but up working uh, and not sleeping. And then there are accounts of Lincoln, which might be apocryphal, but they're the accounts of him in the evening pacing at the cemetery. I actually spend a lot of time thinking about Lincoln out here at the cottage awake, maybe dressed for bed, but not actually in the bed or sleeping. I think it's fascinating to think about the middle of the night as a time where your brain is really active, where your brain is running over and over and over an idea, which is something that I pick up from the primary sources is that it's not that he wasn't going to bed. It's that he was thinking instead, you know, in his pajamas, etc. Yeah. And, and plus, it's really interesting to me that there's this beautiful library here at the cottage, but all of the accounts suggest that he developed the Emancipation Proclamation in an upstairs bedroom. I definitely think that there's a connection there. So we seem agreed that Lincoln is not getting enough sleep. Yeah, and that made us wonder, what does enough sleep look like? So we posed that question to Dr. Waldorf. It depends on how you're functioning in the daytime. So if you take four or five alarm clocks to wake up and you're dragging around all morning, and it t or it takes you hours to fall asleep at night, and... In combination with that, you're tired in the daytime. You're, by definition, not getting enough sleep. So the ideal amount of sleep is someone who wakes up right before the alarm clock goes off and falls asleep, not immediately when their head hits the pillow, but not more An than 20 later. minutes or so later. Yeah. If you're out as soon as your head hits the pillow, you're probably sleep-deprived. So I spent basically the next two weeks after talking to Dr. Waldhorn being like, ah, great, awesome. I'm definitely not getting enough sleep. I have never in my life gotten enough sleep. And it started to feel kind of impossible to reach that state where you always wake up well rested, where you sort of gently drift off and then, you know, wake up the next morning feeling awesome. What was it like for you to learn about some of the more clinical aspects of it? Yeah, so I have always been an early to bed, early to rise kind of person. And I every night can guarantee that I'm going to get eight hours of sleep. But 
no matter what, I never really feel rested. And I don't know why that is. I mean, I've, I've never pulled an all-nighter. I don't know if it's that I'm prone to dreams or nightmares. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know. But I can't remember the last time I woke up feeling rested. For me, it takes like a full 10 hours of sleep to wake up feeling that way. And that's just totally impractical. Like, I can't make that happen and also do anything exciting or do the work that I care about. So that's the piece of Lincoln's experience that makes sense to me, right? Is yeah. that you feel like you have too many important things or interesting things to do to spend all your time trying to get to well-rested. We ran the primary sources on Lincoln's sleep habits by Dr. Waldhorn, and trying to avoid diagnosing something across 150 years of distance, we wondered if there was anything similar that he sees in his present-day patients. So there's a lot there that are, are very reminiscent of common types of insomnia. Patients who complain of uh, insomnia frequently say that their mind is racing, they're working on a problem, they're thinking about an issue, and that behavior interferes with what is normally supposed to happen in sleep, is that your brain is supposed to unwind. Now, this wasn't something I had actually thought about, but in looking into this, we came across another sort of set of common knowledge about Lincoln and his sleep, and that was several specific dreams of Lincoln's that are famous or infamous, depending on how you look at them. My co-producer, Jenny, asked John White about them. What are some of the most interesting dreams that you came across as far as Lincoln? Yeah, so there's two very famous ones, and they both involve his assassination. And the one I believe is true and the other one, I believe, is is a made-up dream. Although I've not persuaded all of my fellow Lincoln historians to believe me that it's <laughs> made up. I think I know which one you're going to be talking about, and that is the most famous one yeah. as far as he, he had a premonition of his own death. So the one that I think is true, he reported to his cabinet on April 14th, 1865, which of course is the day that he was shot. And so they got together for a cabinet meeting at the White House, and the Secretary of War was running late. And so they are just sitting there waiting for him to arrive. And as Lincoln often did, he would tell stories. And so he says something along the lines of, I had this strange dream again last night. And judging from the past, he said he thought it meant good news was coming soon. And he went on to explain that he'd had this dream before every major battle, most of which were Union victories. And so he thought good news was coming, hopefully word from Sherman's army in North Carolina. And... Someone says to Lincoln, well, what was the nature of this dream? And Lincoln says, I, I was on a ship heading toward an unknown shore. Now, for Lincoln, as he first described it, it was a positive dream. He believed good news was coming just like good news had come in the past after he'd had this dream. He'd had it before Gettysburg and after Vicksburg, these great Union vic victories. But Lincoln then was shot that night. And so as the dream continued to be told it took a very dark turn. And so even today, if you've seen the Steven Spielberg movie Lincoln, it's one of the opening scenes. And the way Spielberg depicts it is a very dark, lonely experience Spooky. for him. That's a right. cryptic dream, right? That's yeah. right. And uh, what's funny about it is that's been an evolution. So it was originally a good, positive dream in the, in, the, in the initial wake of Lincoln's assassination, it was seen as sort of Lincoln has some sort of prophetic abilities. But then 
it turns dark. I believe that dream is true because four people who were in the room told the story. And so we've got four different accounts of it. The funny aspect of the four different accounts is each one of those four people puts themselves in the center of the conversation with Lincoln. So Lincoln <laughs> says, I had this dream again. And then each one of them says, what was the nature of the dream? Because they want to be connected to Lincoln in that moment. Yeah. The other one, and this is the one I think, the other one you're thinking of, Lincoln allegedly had about a week or so, 10 days before the assassination, where he was in the White House in his dream, and he heard all sorts of weeping, but he couldn't see anyone. And he starts wandering through the White House, trying to find who's crying, doesn't see anyone, finally makes his way to the East Room, and there he sees a catafalque with a coffin guarded by a soldier. And he goes up to the soldier and he says, who is dead in the White House? And the soldier says, the president, he's been shot by an assassin. And at that point, there's this great burst of grief. And now Lincoln can see all the people mourning in the White House. And he wakes up and he grabs his Bible and he just opens the random pages. And every passage he turns to is something about God sending visions or dreams to people. And so he's just really terrified by this dream. And it's an incredible story, but I don't think it's true. And the funny thing is this story has been told repeatedly in American history. Most of the major Lincoln scholars and biographers of the last hundred years have included it in their books. And so it's been everywhere. I think it's a fraud. So the source that most people cite is Lincoln's bodyguard, Ward Hill Lamon. And Lamon's daughter published her father's memoirs in the 1890s after he died. And what she had done was she had gathered all of his newspaper articles telling about his experiences with Lincoln and put them into a book. So one of the beauties of being a historian today is we've got digital resources available and you can comb through millions of pages of newspapers and books in a matter of minutes or hours in a way that would have just been impossible a generation ago. And so I started to search for words out of this dream and I searched in newspaper databases and on Google Books. And I found reports of this dream from 1874. That's the earliest I found. And I haven't actually searched since about 2015. I should probably search again and see if anything else comes up. But I found reports from 1874 where very short newspaper account of this dream. Then in 1880, a literary magazine in Massachusetts published a much longer account of this dream. And the only people involved were Lincoln and Mary Lincoln and one or two of his boys. So then in 1881, the story circulates more broadly in the newspapers. Ward Hill Lamon publishes it in 1887 in a newspaper, and he puts himself in the center of the story with Lincoln. This is what I think happened. I think that someone made it up in the 1870s, an anonymous literary writer thought this is a good story, embellished it a little bit in 1880. Ward Lamon read it in the newspapers in 1881, said, this is a great story. I'd look really good in this. Published it. His daughter picked it up, put it in the memoir, and then historians have been citing it ever since. So it, it makes for a great story. And I think a lot of people want to believe it's true because it makes us think, again, Lincoln has some sort of supernatural abilities that he's prophesying his own death a week before it happens. But I don't think it's a real dream. Mm -hmm.
This got me thinking about how important primary sources are and also how you can't only rely on those. You have to have context too. We went back to think more deeply about our original question and decided something was missing. There was something in the visitor's initial inquiry that was about not just how could he sleep, but how could he sleep or rest when something so terrible was happening. To help us contextualize that, we went to talk to Bonnie Martin, a licensed professional counselor who works with survivors of modern slavery, about that aspect of the question. Lincoln was not a survivor of trafficking himself. Right. But what do you know or what is the work out there about how seeing that or trying to work against Right. Work to stop something like that affects people. I mean, I think from what I've read of Lincoln, uh, he didn't sleep very well. And he was um, a very relational person who had very deep beliefs and uh, the spirituality side that valued human life. And so when you are uh, someone who is witnessing or responsible for a war, so let's just start there. Let's just start that Lincoln saw the need for our nation to go to war over something so morally reprehensible to him and found it important enough. It, so, you, so you can feel this tension for Lincoln that he cared so deeply about this issue and about the human beings who were in slavery. And at the same time, he cared so deeply about the young men he was sending to war. He was in a no-win situation. People were going to die. Either way. Either way. And so you have this moral crisis where you have to sacrifice some in order to save a whole and for him to even be somewhere like lincoln's cottage and watching um, the civil war uh, vets come home wounded or watching the burials happening it he was front and center he was not removed and there were so many writings and even pictures that were coming out you know where you could see the lashings and um, the chains and you know and the the, uh, the the purchasing and the buying and the separation of families like as the abolition is put to the forefront for a nation this is what's happening you Lincoln's getting that information and then as he is the you know commander-in-chief he's sending off troops and they're coming back broken and wounded and dying or dead and he's got all of that that he's carrying as well. And um, I would think that that hyper arousal for him and more in his mind, because he's not in slavery himself and he's not on the battlefield himself, but he's carrying all of it uh, at a, what we call like psychosocial level, where he is the one who is bearing the weight in his core and hoping that it's going to come out with a United Nation and a, and a and free people, but he didn't know. And I would think that would keep him awake a lot because yeah. there was no guarantees ever. And there was a lot of criticism. He was under a ton of criticism. And he was, um, I think, I believe, just following his own moral compass, which uh, there's a term in, in the psychological field as we study trauma, a kind of form of trauma called moral injury where it's not just a car accident or a fire or an assault, but it is an event that happens where we're failing to prevent or we're bearing witness to inhumane acts which result in the pain, suffering, or death of others. And what kind of impact does that kind of moral injury 
have on people's yeah. like like yeah. their systems like, or right. their daily. Could you talk about yeah the physical, yeah. mental, and emotional? So impact. we'll talk about the the physical is very similar to somebody who has um, PTSD, and that is there there are three domains that we look at when when our body just gets flooded with stress that we cannot manage. One is a kind of re-experiencing of the trauma, which would be nightmares. Many, many people re-experience their trauma in their sleep state, which would stop somebody from sleeping or not wanting to go to sleep. Because if I lay my head to bed at night, I'm going to start uh, dreaming about the, the intense suffering that I know is happening. There's, okay, so there's the re-experiencing. There's a form of like numbness that happens where you just stop finding pleasurable things that you used to find pleasurable and you start disconnecting from life the way you used to do it. And then the last one is a, is a hyper arousal where you can, your body, uh, no matter how tired it is, cannot find the, the place it needs to go in order for deep sleep to happen. And so there's a lot of just restlessness. So you can be exhausted, but the mind is racing and the body itself, uh, adrenaline is at higher levels, cortisol is at higher levels, and sleeplessness is an absolute uh, effect of those. That last one seems the most resonant to me with what we know about Lincoln's experience and that he's sort of like up in the middle of the night thinking yes. and thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking. Couldn't turn it off. Right. right. The body's in a state of heightened arousal. And it's not just physical, it can be mental. And the, the, so then the emotional aspects of moral injury in particular is that you can start feeling uh, shame and guilt, um, a loss of trust in yourself and others in government. You know, there can be just deep spiritual conflicts about the entire meaning of life when you're faced with something so profound as slavery and as a civil war. And I imagine that he was experiencing all of those things in the middle of the night when he couldn't sleep. As we were unpacking all of this, we asked each of our guests how they would have answered the visitor. And you can see how what Bonnie Martin described would lead to Dr. Waldhorn's answer, which was basically that he's amazed Lincoln slept at all with the stress and everything. John White had something interesting to add. It's a great question, and it's a really hard question. And I think that part of what we have to realize is that Lincoln and his generation were a different time from ours. And so I think for Lincoln, I, I think he was tortured at night by this question of civil war and by the, the question of slavery. But he, he was able to, to ultimately craft a plan that enabled him to be successful in restoring the Union and freeing the slaves, even if it meant having the Union be his number one priority, which for us today, we often look at that and we say, hey, aren't those moral isn't that a little backwards? Like today, we, how many of us wake up in the morning? We're like, oh, I'm sure glad I live in the union, that the union was preserved. Like we just don't think that way. We would, we look at the civil war and we say, clearly the moral issue was slavery. Why didn't Lincoln see that way? But I think if we can step back and, and put ourselves into his context, we can begin to realize that there really was a wisdom to the approach that he took. And the other thing I'd say, and this should make us uncomfortable in, in the 21st century is we it's easy to look at people in earlier times and see what their blinders were, right? It's hard to look at ourselves and see what are our blinders. 
We have no idea what people will judge us for in 150 years. And an example I often use with my students is there is more slavery in the world today than at any point in the history of the world. And if you enjoy commercial chocolate or an iPhone or designer clothes, you are benefiting from slavery, from child slavery, from adult slavery, somewhere in the world. And so it's really easy for us to say, how could they have gotten it so wrong in the 1860s without looking at the plank in our own eyes and realizing that we too are living in a world with that same evil and it's not in our face in the way that it it, it was in the 1860s in people's faces but it still is very real and i think if we want to be really cognizant of these kind of issues we need to think about how we can try to bring about changes today as well So the next question is, how can any of us sleep when slavery is happening? (laughs) That's a hard one, Joan. I mean, my initial reaction when John White first asked us was like, well, if I don't sleep, I'm definitely not getting anything done, including whatever I might be doing to work on ending slavery, right? It's sort of very practical about it. You know, I know the the times right now that i'm not sleeping this is one of the things on my mind um you know we're we're getting close to our students opposing slavery international summit here at president lincoln's cottage and you know i i will wake up at night thinking about how can you know how can we plan the best experience for these high school students so that they have the greatest amount of resources to take back to their home communities so that we can impress upon them the seriousness of this issue. You know, and I'll admit a kind of spiral sometimes, but it is one of the things on my mind and it's, it's a little bit overwhelming. Yeah. I think I go back and forth between feeling like I have to forget about how big of a problem it is in order to be able to go to sleep and wake up slightly more rested and do something about it. And the feeling that I need to make everyone all the time more aware of the depth and the breadth of this issue. And that's true for me, both about slavery in the present and slavery in the past. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because it's it's something because for so long, I feel like it it is has been so easy to ignore slavery past and present. Right. So I don't want anyone to ignore it, but I also know that if I spend all night not sleeping, I will be less effective in, yeah. in working to combat it. Yeah. You can't do anything about it. It goes back to my mom. I feel like we could keep going and, and talking about this. Um, and what occurs to me is that there might not be a single answer to this question. Um, but... Bonnie had great insight into what asking it in the first place meant. I think that that question comes from uh, someone who is incredibly empathetic. That this child is saying, I, if I knew somebody was suffering, I couldn't sleep. And I think that, that is, that's what empathy does. Empathy allows you to step into somebody's shoes to the extent that you uh you will act to to make changes when you know that somebody's suffering and and that's why i think lincoln was the same way so how could lincoln sleep if slavery was happening first of all i don't think he did he did and then secondly if he did sleep it was probably at those moments where his body just completely 
gave out because the body can only go so long yeah. without having any sleep yeah. at all. So I'm sure he did get some sleep, uh, but yeah. because I wouldn't be able to sleep. And that's what that student was saying. Right. I, I wouldn't be able to sleep if I knew slavery was how. Who could sleep? And so I'm grateful for students like this one because <laughs> that means there's a future um, fighter for injustice. That's what we hope for when people visit the cottage today, that they have the chance to reflect on the same things Lincoln was reflecting on. For me, delving into this question has given me a new perspective on the incredible scope of Lincoln's work despite his stress and his sleep deprivation, and another way to imagine him as human. I know what it's like to get less sleep than you know you should because you're working on something that's important to you. And as a listener, we want to encourage you to think about what problems in the world do you care about solving? What are you willing to lose sleep in service of? This episode was produced by me, Joan Cummins, and Callie Hawkins, with assistance from Jenny Phillips. Music for Q&A was written, performed, and is copyrighted by Clancy Newman. Q&A is possible thanks to generous supporters of President Lincoln's Cottage. To support this podcast and other programming, visit lincolncottage.org. To the brave second grader who asked the question behind this episode, we admire your unwillingness to compromise on slavery. Comments? Questions? Write to us at podcast at lincolncottage.org. President Lincoln's Cottage is a home for brave ideas. Stay curious.